Teeth. You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. from uh, 1 Samuel 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Agilon. And this is Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps, as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn wait. Yeah. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. We have been, this semester, working our way through uh, the life of David in a little series that we're just calling Ordinary Spirituality. What does it look like to just live the ordinary Christian life? Of course, not everybody in this room is a Christian, and that's great. That's kind of how we want RUF to be. We want everybody represented from all over the spectrum. And so if you don't uh, consider yourself a Christian tonight, maybe by looking at this passage and going through the series with us, maybe you get a better idea of what a Christian actually looks like, or at least what the Bible says a Christian should look like. And tonight we're going to talk about a topic that's obviously very common to everybody. It doesn't matter what your faith is. It's just part of the human experience that we go through suffering, hardship, and grief. And so um, I want to begin by talking about this, by kind of uh, entering into the subject by reading some of the lyrics from a song that I'm sure most of y'all are familiar with, uh, from uh, our girl Regina Spector, who wrote a song a couple years ago called Laughing With God. Is that what it's called? No, just Laughing With. God is implied. And um, here are here are a couple of lines from this song. <clears throat> no one laughs at God in a hospital. No one laughs at God in a war. No one's laughing at God when they're starving or freezing or so very poor. No one laughs at God when the doctor calls after some routine tests. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late and their kid's not back from the party yet. 
No one laughs at God when their airplane starts to uncontrollably shake. No one's laughing at God when they see the one they love hand in hand with someone else and they hope that they are mistaken. And it kind of goes on like this, kind of listing all of these examples that nobody's laughing at God when really horrible stuff happens. And the chorus hits, and the the beginning of the chorus goes, but God can be funny at a cocktail party when listening to a good God-themed joke. And then it kind of just finishes the chorus with this line, God can be so hilarious. And she just kind of like, in an eerie way, just starts like kind of laughing. Ha, ha. And it's just kind of like a little odd. (laughs) But if you've heard the song, you kind of get the basic point that she's making, that um, it's easy to laugh at God. It's easy to believe that God doesn't exist when things are going well. Uh, When you're at a cocktail party, when you're laughing, in fact, that's one of the reasons, uh, you, you know, you, you think about the existence of God as being laughable or, or you object to the existence of God when things are going well. And it's usually in these sterile, safe, clinical environments like uh, in a philosophy classroom where you're debating the existence of God. It's all pretty safe. Or when you're up late arguing with a roommate in the dorms or whatever. But when really horrible stuff happens, all that stuff that she listed, People stop laughing at God. In fact, people that weren't religious or spiritual can suddenly become very spiritual and very religious. I've had close uh, people, people close to me, have asked me to pray for them uh, when something really horrible happened and these people don't believe in God. So suffering is a really interesting thing because it has the power to change you one way or the other. It can take uh, non-religious spiritual people and make them spiritual and... Suffering can hit in the life of someone who is spiritual and religious and cause them to lose their faith. The point is, um, suffering always changes you. And so the question I want to try to answer tonight is this. How can we learn the lessons to go through suffering in such a way so that when we come out the other side, we've changed for the better? We're stronger, we're fuller, we're more whole of a person instead of going through hardship in this life and then coming out the other side more cynical, more jaded, more angry. So here's what I want to do. To get into this, I just want to go over the story that you find in 1 Samuel 21. And then we're going to look at one of David's journal entries that he wrote during this kind of season in his life. And then maybe we'll just glean three lessons about how to deal with suffering. So let's look at the story first. Here's kind of what's going on here. If you remember, just a quick recap, Saul was crowned the first king of Israel. He's a horrible person, and so God rejected him, even though he still had power. And here comes this young uh, dude named David that God has selected to be the next king to take over the throne. But because he kills Goliath and everybody loves David, Saul's incredibly envious and so goes on this manhunt to kill David. And so David goes into the wilderness, goes into... Uh, hiding. He's like a fugitive because Saul has recruited armies to go after him and kill him. So for, the, for many chapters in this book, Saul's running for his life. I think that qualifies as a crisis. That qualifies as suffering. I think if one person wanted you dead, like that would be a bad situation, right? But this was, an, this was like an, a nation of people chasing and hunting down David. So, go to verse 10 in your your passage there. It says that David flees from Saul and he goes to this dude named Achish that is the king of this area, this city called Gath. Now, here's what you need to know about this city called Gath. Gath is in Philistine territory, which, as you may remember, 
The Israelites were mortal enemies with the Philistines. So this would be like everyone in America chasing you, trying to kill you, and so you think it's a good idea to go hide in a city occupied by ISIS. You know, David's thinking, nobody's going to find me there. I'll just kind of slip in incognito. And here's the other thing that you need to know about the city of Gath. Guess whose hometown that was? Goliath. And I didn't put this in your little handout there, but in chapter 21, verse 9, we know that David is in possession of Goliath's sword, the very sword he used to chop the head off of Goliath. So he rolls into Gath with Goliath's sword, and as my boy Austin Lennox put it, this would kind of be like Derek Zoolander hiding from Mugatu at Hansel's bachelor pad. I think that's spot on. Thanks, Lennox. Spot on. Uh, So, of course, everybody recognizes him. Um, They've heard that pop song that everybody was singing back in the day. You see it in your text there. I think it's verse 10. It goes, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. It was a dance that went with it, too. But if you think about the song, who were the ten thousands people that David killed? These were Philistines. Like, Gath was full of destroyed families and widows because of David. And he rolls into town, and so they immediately recognize him, and they arrest him. You find out in verse uh, 13, it says that he was in their hands, meaning he was apprehended, he was in their custody. And it says in verse 12 that David was, quote, much afraid, meaning he is terrified because uh, he has been captured by his mortal enemies, and they are going to kill him. Like this, is, this should be the end of the story of David. It should end with his enemies torturing him to death, and that's the end of the David story. So out of complete desperation, David kind of throws up this Hail Mary, and he just starts pretending to be crazy. He starts writing weird scribbly scrabble on the, on the wall. He lets drool dribble down his beard, and he's you know, probably speaking crazy gibberish stuff. He's like Academy Award winning performance. And the king... Totally buys it. It's like, dude, this, this dude is crazy. we got to get him out of here. Because apparently in this ancient culture, there was a weird superstition uh, surrounding mental illness. And so David dodges a bullet and escapes. But here's the question. Where is he going to go? He can't go to Israel. Everyone there wants to kill him. He can't go back to Gath. So our story ends in chapter 22, verse 1, with this. Him crawling into a cave. Pressed in by all sides. Everyone wants you dead. Nearly everyone from your country has betrayed you. You're lonely. You're in a dark cave. You have no access to food and water. This is where David's story has just, you know, landed. And if you stop and think about David's life as a whole, David was like just doing his thing one day, chilling in the field with his dad's sheep, and God comes into his life and appoints him to be the next king, which is awesome. David's like, this is sweet. The very next scene, he's killing Goliath. Everyone's singing songs about him. He's an instant celebrity. He's like on this ultimate high. Life is good. God is good. It's like he went to camp and had that camp experience, and then he comes home, and everything falls apart. Everything unravels. Everyone betrays him. He's on the run for his life. The wheels have come off and he's desperate. And he finds himself cold, hungry, thirsty, and in a dark cave with everyone in the world seemingly trying to kill you. How would you deal with that? Right? I mean, um, God, I thought you chose me for a purpose. I thought you were for me. I thought you loved me. This is not the life I signed up for. 
During this time, David writes two different psalms, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. And I thought it may be interesting just to read his journal entries, one of these journal entries from Psalm 56, and maybe see three lessons about how he goes through suffering, so that maybe we can go through suffering in the right way as well. So that's what I want to do. Let's just look at three lessons from Psalm 56 about how to deal with suffering and to endure it rightly. Here's the first uh, lesson I think we need to learn from David here, is that we have to acknowledge the reality of suffering. That's the first lesson. We have to acknowledge the reality of it. Look at 56 verse 1. David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. I mean, David's crying out for God to be gracious to him. He's crying out for mercy. If you're crying out for mercy, that means you're at the end of your rope. People are attacking me. People are trying to trample me. It says in verse 8, he's talking to God, God, you have put my tears in your bottle. This means that David is crying a lot. And so here's the first thing that you have to recognize. David is honest about the fact that life is hard. That suffering is real, that he is hurting. He acknowledges the reality of suffering. And it seems like such an obvious point. But I want to camp on it for just a second because I have seen so many Christians in Christian college culture refuse to be honest about what's hard in life. Uh, think about this. Um, uh, I was recently talking with a, uh, another leader of another campus ministry here at UT, and we were just kind of telling stories and talking about counselors in the area, like who, is, who, are, some of the, who are some good counselors that we can send our students to? And he said, well, you know, a lot of my students, um, a lot of my Christian students, there's just this weird taboo around counseling. So people don't go, people don't talk about it, because... Um, what if somebody finds out that like you're in therapy? Like, what would that say about you? It would say that you're weak, or like you know, what would it say about Jesus if, if people find out that you need like professional help? And I was really um, uh, taken aback by that because um, I come from the position of, you know, who I think would be a good candidate for therapy? Like anyone breathing. If you're alive, you should be in counseling. Right? Because we're all hurting. We're all carrying around wounds. We're all a mess. I mean, this is why Christians say that we need Jesus, right? We need help. We need help. If you cannot acknowledge the fact that suffering is real and that your pain is real and that your life is hard, you will never be able to deal with and process the pain that you do have. You will never be able to deal with it. But I do understand the cultural pressure. I do understand the pressure that you have to be on, you have to be strong, you have to be happy, you have to be smiley, you have to be put together. I just want you to hear me say from up front, that is not Christian. I think it's actually satanic. You, you do not, ben- like, if you think I need to preserve my witness by pretending to be strong, let me just say, that does nothing for your witness, and it does nothing for the glory of God. If you actually, I think the way that you can be the best witness for Jesus is to learn to cry. Look at David in this psalm, weeping. Look at Jesus in the New Testament, weeping. What is the shortest verse in the New Testament? Jesus wept. 
At the center of our faith is a bloody cross. That means that Christians should have the most resources and feel the most freedom to be honest about how messed up we are and how much we hurt and how much we suffer and how much we need Jesus. I, I, I heard this story this week. Uh, but did you know that in March 1981, President Ronald Reagan, uh, there was an assassination attempt on President Reagan. He was speaking at some thing. I think it was in D.C. where politicians are. He was speaking at some thing, and he, and he walked down on the sidewalk, and uh, he was with his entourage, and they were like heading for the limo, and this guy comes out of nowhere and just starts shooting. He collapses to the ground. He's shot in the chest. Uh, they, they take down the, the shooter. They immediately kind of take uh, Reagan you know, directly to the ER. And nobody really knew how injured he was. He was coughing up blood the whole way that he was there. And the limo pulls up to the ER. And President Reagan insists that he get out of the limo by himself. And he gets out of the limo. He straightens up his back. He kind of tucks in his midsection, adjusts his pants, buttons up his suit jacket and walks into the ER like a boss. <laughs> like the president. And then collapses 30 feet later. Isn't that... <laughs> that got sympathy from somebody. I think, um, I think that's ridiculous. Because that's an image of us. We're bleeding and we're hurting and we're carrying around all these wounds and we feel on top of that this added pressure that we've got to be buttoned up and smile and on and strong and then we just collapse in our own way 30 feet down the road. So here's the point that I want to, to, to um, make at this first stop is can I just invite you to admit that your life is hard? That for you to look at your life and your circumstances and to say, man, this breakup was excruciatingly painful for me. What I have gone through with my family and what we have dealt with, there are no answers for. There's no solutions for. There's no clear-cut way to fix this. That is a Christian response. That's you begging for mercy. That's you being just like David. It is anti-Christian to fake it until you make it. I want to invite you to be honest, to acknowledge the reality of suffering. That's the first lesson that we see here. Here's the second lesson I want you to get. To defiantly trust in God. Defiantly trust in him. Look at 56 verse 3. David says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Isn't that interesting? Look at, look at verse 3 and then look at verse 4. He says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you and I shall not be afraid. When I'm afraid, I will not be afraid. Here's what one commentator said about these verses. He said, faith is seen here as a deliberate act in defiance of one's emotional state. And I love that language. That faith is defiance against your emotions. And here's what I think he means. Uh, we can use me as an example. When, um, when my life is going well, when my relationships are thriving, when things are kind of going my way, when I'm happy and it's sunny outside... Life is good, and therefore God is good. I think that God is good because my life is good. But when things get hard, when my relationships are strained, when I'm overwhelmed, when there's too much to manage, when I'm afraid, when I'm anxious, it's really easy for me to question whether or not God is good. If life is not good, 
God is not good. And I, and I wonder if I'm the only person that when suffering hits, it triggers doubt in you. I mean, I think suffering for me is, is probably the biggest thing that kind of makes me question everything. Where I'm just kind of like, is, is this real? Or is, this just, or is Christianity just like a big elaborate prank? Like, or maybe are, are we really just, maybe we are just advanced apes that are standing on a marble that's just spinning in the blackness of the universe. And there's no meaning or point to it at all. Maybe it's just me. But I think, why is that? Why is it that suffering triggers doubt in us? And, and here's why I think it is. It's because we're, we're choosing to focus on the wrong things. You know, you have a choice on what you want to focus on. If you think about like a phone, when I take a picture of my kid, sometimes like if, if my son's in front of me and I want to take a picture of him, he's like all blurry and the phone's choosing to like focus on the cabinet in the background or something. And so you have to, you know, hit it and, and change the focus so that, you're, that what you want is in the foreground and it's crystal clear and that's in the background. It happens the same way as you go through life. You can go through life and experience un- incredible, confusing, overwhelming circumstances And you can choose to focus on them, that your circumstances and what's happening to you is that, that is what is crystal clear. That's what's in front of you. And God is kind of in the background, fuzzy and not really in the picture. And when you do that, that means that all of your emotions are tied to your circumstances. Your hope is tied to getting out of those circumstances and your well-being is tied to those circumstances. But when God becomes the focus When he becomes the thing that is crystal clear in your heart and in your mind, that means that your hope, your well-being, and your emotions are tied to him, not to your circumstances. That's why I love uh, how defiant David is in verse 3 and 4. I will trust in you. I will focus on you. I will choose to see your faithfulness and your goodness and your mercy. That's what faith is. Faith is you choosing to believe something that goes against your feelings. Because when life really gets hard, your feelings are screaming at you, right? God isn't good. God doesn't care. God doesn't love you. God isn't even real. If he were, why would your life be so screwed up? And so you have a choice. Are you going to listen to those voices or choose to listen to the voice of your creator. Uh, think of it like this. Let's say that you go to a doctor and you um, sit down with them and they tell you the reason why you've been so sick so late, uh, lately is because we've done some tests on you and you're deathly allergic to chocolate. You didn't know it and you've been eating all this chocolate. It's a bad day. And so they, they, they look at you and they say, if you eat any more chocolate, you, like, it is going to be very seriously bad for you. And they show you the, the allergy report and the, the blood test and like all, all that stuff. And so you take that information and you go home and you're like, okay, doctor says no more chocolate. Good. And, but later that week, you and your friends uh, go out to celebrate the birthday of one of your friends. And you go out to dinner and everybody is uh, hanging out afterward. And somebody decides to order one of those molten lava chocolate cakes. And they bring it out. Everybody's just going to share it. And you smell it. And you see it, and you see somebody kind of put their fork into it, and it kind of cuts open all that chocolate goo, just kind of like spreads out over the thing, and your mouth starts watering, and you start feeling that craving come up inside you, and you hear this voice in your head screaming at you to say, one little bite's not going to do anything. One little bite's not going to do anything. And so you have a choice in that moment. Are you going to listen to the voice of your feelings, or are you going to choose to listen to oh, I don't know, the medically trained, uh, 
professional, licensed, authority, doctor on the subject. In the same way, when you experience the hardship of life, those voices are screaming at you. God isn't real. Your emotions are what is what's real. Uh, God isn't good. God isn't loving. Will you listen to your longings, your feelings, or will you stand in defiance of your feelings and say, no, I'm going to choose to listen to the creator, redeemer, the eternal, supreme king of kings that is infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely loving. I will focus on him, not whatever my heart is telling me. Defiantly trust God. Acknowledge that suffering is real. Defiantly trust in God. And here's the last lesson I want you to take away. You have to anchor your soul to his love. Anchor your soul to his love. Look at verse uh, 8 and 9 of this psalm. David writes, You have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. I think that's the greatest verse in this whole thing. If you have a Bible, you can underline and circle and highlight that trash. This I know that God is for me. How can he say that? How can he say, God's, I know that God is for me. He's at the lowest point in his life. He is alone. He is forsaken. Uh, his life is in jeopardy. He is completely desperate. His life has fallen apart. It looks very clearly like God has abandoned him or forsaken him. And yet, he says, this I know. God's for me. How can he say that? Here's why I think he can say that. Because he has chosen to anchor his heart, his soul, to the love of God. He has basically said, I am utterly convinced that God is for me. And that means I'm going to interpret everything that happens to me through that grid, through that lens. Every hardship, every painful difficulty, everything that is overwhelming, everything that's unbearable and confusing. I don't know why God chose us to bring it into my life. I don't know why he's bringing this into my life, but I know he's doing it for some reason because he's for me, because he loves me. You see how that radically changes how you experience life, how you go through reality? Everything that happens to me, good and bad, is from the hand of a gracious, good God that I am convinced is for me. But here's the question, how can we know that? How can we know that his love for us is real so that even the hardest, most difficult thing that happens in your life, you can say, this I know that he's for me. I want you to think about um, the movie Castaway for a second. I don't know why I thought of Castaway this week, but I did. Tom Hanks, Helen Hunt. I hated this movie. Actually, I... um, I actually really enjoyed the movie until the end. If you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it. But I think it came out maybe 20 years ago. So um, Tom Hanks plays like this FedEx executive guy. And he's in love with this girl named Kelly. And early on in the beginning of the movie, they get engaged. And uh, he has to kind of split town for a quick trip to Malaysia to like oversee a delivery. And so he... um, Gets in this plane, and there's this plane crash, and he ends up on a deserted island for four years. And for the bulk of the movie, you're just seeing Tom Hanks like on an island, and it's the most painful, horrible thing ever. Because he's so excruciatingly lonely that he like befriends a volleyball. You remember he calls it Wilson? 
And then Wilson gets lost at sea. It's a very sad moment. And um, he has to bust one of his teeth out that has gotten infected with like the edge of a roller blade that was in uh, an ice skate. It was an ice skate that was in the plane. He has to find his own food. He has to find his own water. He has to learn how to uh, like make fire. It's like the most painful, awful movie ever. I don't know. Maybe I didn't like it. But the thing, the thing that was sustaining him was his love for his fiance and his fiance's love for him. And so after four years, he gets rescued. He gets like found and taken after four years of being missing at sea. He gets brought back to Memphis where the story, where his, where his fiance is. And he comes and he reconnects with her and he reunites with her. And he comes to discover that she thought he had died at sea. And so she's remarried and has a daughter by that dude. It's crushingly, devastatingly awful. And you come to realize his hope, he had anchored his soul in the love of his life and it had failed him because it wasn't real. Or it was real, but it just, it didn't work out for him. And so here's my question for you. How can you know that God's love for you is real? If you're going to anchor your soul to God's love, how can you know that this is not just stupid, religious, made up, uh, self-help nonsense? How can you actually go through horrible, overwhelming, confusing, excruciatingly painful things and say like David, this I know that God is for me. Here's how you can know. Because God actually stepped into verifiable human history to show it to you. David had a sense of God's love for him, but he had no clue the lengths with which that God would go to rescue him. But we do, because we're on this side of the cross. Look, centuries after this story, God comes to earth in the person of Jesus. And just like David, he has been betrayed by everyone that's close to him. Just like David, he was arrested by people that wanted to kill him. Just like David, he was at the mercy of a wicked pagan king. Only Jesus doesn't make it out alive. Jesus doesn't put on a performance so that he can escape. In fact, Jesus says nothing to defend himself. And they do to Jesus what they should have done to David, torture him to death. And he dies via execution on a cross. Why, though? Why would Jesus voluntarily submit to this level of punishment and suffering? Here's why. The Bible tells you in Hebrews chapter 12 says this, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. That's saying Jesus went through the horror of the cross because there was a joy that was set before him on the other side that he knew if I can just go, if I go through this suffering, the thing that is holding me together through it is this joy that I'm going to get on the other side of it. What is that? You know what that is? You. You. He went through the suffering and through the hell of the cross so that he could get you. He had anchored his soul to his love for you. He has demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, he gave himself for us. And it is the cross that becomes the key, that now you can go through life and interpret all of reality through that interpretive grid. The most excruciatingly painful, confusing, overwhelming thing can come into your life. And you can say, I know that he's for me. 
If you do not have the cross at the center of how you interpret reality, this means that when you go through hardship and suffering, in the back of your mind you will always wonder, maybe he's punishing me. Is this him trying to pay me back for something that I screwed up in? Is this him just trying to punish me? Or you'll always question his goodness. God isn't good. God can't be good. Look what's happening to me. But when the cross is at the center of your heart and how you interpret reality, you can say, I don't know why God is doing this. I don't know why God is allowing this. I don't know why God has brought this into my life. There are no answers. But I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt it's not because he's punishing me. Because he punished Jesus for me. I know it's not because God has abandoned me. Because God abandoned Jesus for me. I know that it's not because God is forsaking me. Because God forsook Jesus for me. I don't know why God has brought this into my life. But I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's not because he doesn't love me. Nothing can separate me from the love that God has for me in Christ. This I know that God is for me. And so here's how I'm done. I just want to say one last thing. Because I get the privilege to like sit down with some of y'all and have coffee and lunch, I get to hear your stories and I get to know you. And I know that you're hurting. I know that you're struggling. I know that you're grieving. I know that you're angry with God sometimes and you feel guilty about the fact that you're angry with God. I know that your life is hard. And so I want you to respond to this text tonight in those three ways. I want to just gently encourage you to acknowledge that your suffering is real. To be honest about it and not feel the Christian bullcrap response of I've got to be phony and fake and be strong. That I can actually be at the end of my rope and beg God for mercy. But then also to defiantly trust in him. To say his goodness, his character is more real than my feelings about my life. And then lastly, to anchor your soul to his love. To know that no matter what happens in my life, it's not because he doesn't love me. I don't know why he's brought this into my life, but it's not because he doesn't love me. May we all leave tonight with maybe a greater sense and a greater confidence that we can say, this I know that he is for me. Let me pray. Father, would you help us to believe? Would you give us confidence in your great love for us? Father, I don't know all the stories of the folks here, um, but I know that, that we just represent so much wreckage and pain and damage and stuff that just does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. And yet, Father, you have... You have allowed us to live in this tension of trusting you, of acknowledging what's hard. And yet, Father, I pray that your word will have penetrated our heart and our soul to such a level that we could, uh, with confidence, maybe not enormous confidence, maybe even just a a mustard seed sized of faith to be able to say, I don't know why this is happening in my life, but this I know, that God is for me because you've proven it and demonstrated it at the cross. Help us to believe this together, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. No one laughs at God in a hospital. No one laughs at God in a war. No one 
one's laughing at God when they're starving or freezing or so very poor. No one laughs at God when a doctor calls after some routine tests. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late and their kid's not back from that party yet. No one laughs at God when their airplane starts to uncontrollably shake. No one's laughing at God when they see the one they love hand in hand with someone else and they hope that they're mistaken. No one laughs at God when the cops knock on their door and they say we got some bad news, sir. No one's laughing at God when there's a famine, fire, or flood. But God could be funny at a cocktail party while listening to a When the crazy say he hates us and they get so red in the head, you think they're about to choke. God could be funny when told he'll give you money if you just pray the right way. And when presented like a genie with his magic like Houdini or grand swishes like Jiminy Crick and Santa Claus. God could be so hilarious, ha ha. God in a hospital 